and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Violet Luca, digital editor. In this episode, a savvy band of critics hash out the best and worst of Cannes. Plus, Nick Pinkerton speaks with Whit Stillman about his latest, Love and Friendship. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name's Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor, and today I'm joined by... Amy Talbin. I'm a contributing editor for Film Comment and Art Forum. Nicholas Rapold, editor of Film Comment. Brandon Harris. Assistant Professor at SUNY Purchase and Vice Film Correspondent. Well, thank you all for coming today. And this is the second half of our Cannes Roundtable, post-Cannes, where we'll do a little post-mortem of the awards, the second half of the festival, air any grievances that were not previously aired during the first half. <laughs> I'm sure there are plenty. I guess, you know, before we started, we were ta- you were talking a little bit about the Javier Dillon, which rather notoriously, was given an award, and Mr. Delon was booed. Okay, it was one of the worst films at Cannes, but he's been going downhill, you know, since his first film, which was really promising. I don't know, there were a lot of bad, bad films, and too many of them were recognized in awards. It, it seemed especially silly that the Dolan film was recognized, though, given that a director of that potential, and I think that pedigree, making a film that is so stagey and boring aesthetically that I think takes this material that was stage bound already and makes it feel even more inert. I just found it so surprising that the jury was was taken with it. But There's been a lot of writing about this jury, mostly because, you know, in the first podcast, we were all over the moon about Tony Erdman and absolutely sure that it was going to win the palm. And then it wasn't recognized at all. And there's been a lot of chatter about why. I thought the only thing that might give Tony Erdman problems, and I thought this all along, is that there are two main characters. One is a dad who's a practical joker and lots to put on disguises. And when he disguises himself as the protagonist's life coach, He puts on this wig and these teeth, and he looks like a terrible version of Donald Sutherland, who was on the jury. (laughs) And I thought, Donald Sutherland will never vote for this movie. That's funny, because I'm looking at the images of the film. I did not think of Sutherland. Nor did I. I thought maybe he'd look more like uh, George Miller, actually. But I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a shorn but, but George Miller. But it does seem like the film that would, would have some passionate champions and also the type of film that would turn off members of a jury. And it, you know, I think you often find that films, um, on, especially in the dynamics of a jury, who knows what, what takes place, but often the films that rise to the top are films that are sort of consensus picks in, in, in their mediocrity. Yeah, and but this one... This one had everyone. I mean, critics who I don't talk to because I think they're so dumb. (laughs) Everyone just over the moon about it. Amy will provide a list. (laughs) And that's what was interesting about it, that it it just had this mass appeal. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, yeah, it really seemed like it would change. And then when it was picked up by Sony Pictures Classics, that also just seemed another step for this to be... You know, for lack of a better word, a game changer in some way. You know, that a, a movie like this, so ambitious, so sensitive and tuned, but also unwieldy. You know, in in, in convention, you know, compared to conventional, you know, movies, it's 
but I don't know. The I don't know. Jury did not think so. Yeah, somehow. It was not the only really strong film that was ignored, though. I thought Paul Verhoeven's L, which came late in the festival, and I think was like kind of a, a shock to the system of the festival. You know, very late uh, in a positive way. Perhaps Sean Penn's film was in a negative way. We get to that later. Oh, right. But but I thought that that film was one of his best films. It's at seventy seven years old. A, a film that in many ways felt French. Uh, you know, in a way that it was. I didn't see represented in some of the other films. I mean, it, it kind of felt like a Desplechen film or a sort of vintage essayist film instead of the, the minor film that he finally won Best Director for. Ultimately, I was kind of shocked that that film didn't find more champions than the jury either. Yeah, I was kind of... I wasn't shocked because Verhoeven is such a polarizing figure, and but Isabel Hubert was not recognized for that performance. I mean, her performance is the film. Absolutely. Yeah. And Although she's been, she's won twice before. I yeah, and she's been the president of the jury, but... I mean, there did seem to be a sort of a political bent to some of the prize winners. Um, and, and I mean, that was certainly the, I think, a rumbling among people in the press, whether they were willing to put that in their copy in the days afterward or not. But ultimately, the Best Actress Prize going to Marosa and uh, Jacqueline Jose, well, yeah. as well as the, the Loach film winning, felt like the, the Miller jury at least wanted the awards to have a sort of politicized bent to them. Well, here, I see, I've been thinking about a lot about this because people were talking about this, but the fact is Tony Erdman is an intensely political film yeah. as well as everything else it is. Yeah. And so that's why, I, I don't Can know. Can you say how so? But not in a conventional way. Well, it doesn't wear its politics. It doesn't ever have anyone come forward and say, this film is about the 60s versus the millennials. Yeah. I mean, it never <laughs> says that, but... <laughs> but, but, it, but it does have at least twice someone saying words to the effect of, are you a human being? <laughs> you know, in this kind of way that's expecting you to kind of have some soul searching and in the context of like... Because the main character has this job where she's a corporate consultant and she's deep within this culture, which is no culture. <laughs> and it's just kind of hollowed her out from the inside in a way. And I, I don't know, that's how I felt the movie was really political, is showing... In, in a very detailed way, too. That's another thing that really impressed me about Tony Erdman is it's not like they had some straw man vision of corporate culture. It was with fine-grained detail exactly how things work in a boardroom, exactly the, the, the power dynamics, the relationships, the, the weird ventriloquism <laughs> that's institutionalized and with the passing of responsibilities, not in vague ways, but in like with as much detail as she drew the relationship between the father and the daughter. So that's why when people said, oh, I, Daniel Blake was the political choice, I thought, well, uh, I mean, that's definitely giving short shrift to everything that Tony Erdman is doing. And in some ways, in just as much, if not more detail than I, Daniel Blake is doing in, in its critique. So that's my say on the, on the, on the political, political issue. It also is a film that I think that's why it had such a large positive audience yeah. that is specific to, yes, they're German, but... If they're in Romania, <laughs> and then this could be taking place anywhere. Right. You know, whereas the Ken Loach film is very specifically about England. The Manju film is very, very specifically about Romania. Sure. But Tony Erdman has this really embracing framework. So that's why it also was quite shocking. Was being a comedy aligned against it, you think, in some ways? I mean, it's very unusual for a Palm winner to be funny, really, in, in almost any way. I'm trying to think when there was a Palm winner. 
<laughs> we list. can't. They don't. They don't come easily to mind. Um, you know, I, I was at the the first screening of the film, which there was quite a bit of laughter. Mm-hmm. But a number of critics I talked to who were at the second screening of the film suggested that that screening did not play with nearly as much um, aplomb. So you know, I, that you wonder like who's in the room, wh- whether the laughter at the the screening of the jurors attend, you know, had the same dynamism that mm-hmm. the laughter did at you know at eight thirty in the morning. I don't know. I mean, that that could be a factor. I could see a person maybe approaching Tony Erdman and on the surface seeing the premise that it pretty immediately subverts <laughs> and, and thinking it's just, oh, this is, especially since it's German, I'm sure people have stereotypes about German comedy or lack thereof <laughs> that, that, you know, we make it hard for them to get into it. Yeah. Mm. I mean, there are incredible sight gags in it. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> which, Absolutely. Yeah, which we will not give away. <laughs> it's, it's so worth it being totally in the dark about it. Yeah. And scenes that ramble on and go into completely unexpected places. Yeah. Like that, you know, could end in a sort of conventional way at three minutes and end in a, com- take the movie in a broad new direction at seven. It's really bravura, risky work and just the type of work you don't see often, which is, you know, why it's such a shame that it wasn't recognized. But, you know, I suspect it'll, it may last longer than some of the films that that were. I think it will find an audience larger than Ken Loach. <laughs> yeah. Poor Ken. One thing that was interesting to me about the Ken Loach is he, he has this long-running thing about being on hold on, like, a helpline. And for me, that seemed like a way in for anyone who has ever been on hold with customer service to, to the experience of the particular character who's, you know, for him it's like the healthcare stuff. But... But you can kind of get into it in that way, in a way maybe you couldn't in previous Ken Loach's words. Yeah, I mean, as someone who's been in welfare lines, I certainly felt the boredom of waiting and the sense of like no one really being invested in helping you. Right. And I mean, that, that, that felt like a, a you know, a lived in in a way I hadn't seen in the movies before. And also, he's kind of a very relatable character in terms of feeling like time is passing him by or like the sense that he can't even access the, his basic needs in modern life. Because of technology and the way that you know, ultimately, um, society isn't attempting to find a place for him. Especially the scene where he visits the woman uh, who's in charge of putting together a CV and advising him, and he's written it in longhand, and just the contempt she shows for him. I mean, that was one of the most unforgettable scenes of the festival for me. So, I mean, I understand the the sort of sense of wanting to celebrate the film. I think it's one of his better films in, in some time, but it, it would have been a great pre delajury winner, you know, like a third place sort of film. Right. But it just didn't seem to, you know, I, uh, comparing it to something like uh, American Honey, which is another story of being in the Western underclass and, and having li- very little ability to, you know, self-actualize or to, to make, you know, ends meet and, and trying to f- find a way to do that. That's a film shot by the same cinematographer, Robbie Ryan. And yet it's, it has such an immediacy and visual splendor to it that Mr. Loach, for all his strengths, would never make you know part of his work. I almost wish that the storytelling nuance that I found in the Loach film and the sense of character and urgency in the character's plight that I found in that film had been something that maybe I, I found more of in American Honey, which you know for me was kind of a meandering, drifting experience that was intermittently you know terrific and boring. <laughs> right. I didn't see it. No. There was nothing I heard about American Honey that made me want to take. You know, it's so hard again. Everything is up against everything else. But in addition, that was the day the ceiling of my shower fell on me oh. with me in the shower. Oh. Uh, so I was not working hard that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But you survived. You're here. I survived. I got sent to a spa, and they hosed me off because the plaster would have stuck all over my body. No kidding around. <laughs> it was like a cleansing experience. The, the sky fell. <laughs> um, well, I don't even know how to follow that. <laughs> There's surely a good segue we can take. Yeah. Um, did anyone have any comparable experiences where it was just the sky fell and your the three days in which I had food poisoning from eating one of the the tuna sandwiches from the kiosks on the beach? Long. Oh, it was awful. I mean, it was it was a terrible move. Long story short, I snuck the tuna fa- sandwich in to the Ew. whaling, uh, which is one of my favorite films of the festival, and it's probably the worst thing you can eat during that film. But it seemed uh, sort of apropos given that this film, which is this remarkable two-hour and 40-minute South Korean demonic possession movie that has, uh, you know, shades of uh, The Exorcist and a lot of sort of classic demonic possession movies. But then also the breadth of, you know, sort of the work of uh, more popular so- uh, South Korean directors like Park Chan-wook, who was in competition, or, or Bong Joon-ho. I, I mean, th- th- this film was just really impressive. I mean, I like in The Wailing how, how they, they kind of keep you guessing about who you're supposed to trust Absolutely. They did that more effectively than most any, you know, film like that. There's this wonderful kind of intercutting between um, the shaman sort of uh, who's been hired by this police officer to help rid the town of demonic possession and this Japanese mystery man who they think may be behind the evil spirits that seem to be turning people into cannibals. And this third figure, a a mysterious young woman who uh, also is being blamed by the shaman as as the figure who's really responsible and ultimately the film does keeps you guessing into its very final moments yeah. in a way that proves you know as suspenseful purely suspenseful as anything i saw at the festival yeah. and disturbing too i mean the, the, this was an audition quality to the final few minutes i, I don't want to give it away but our our protagonist perhaps makes uh the wrong choice um, in a way that that is more costly than he can imagine. Um, <laughs> That's very good. That's like a trailer. <laughs> <laughs> um, Speaking of like possessions and maybe hauntings, and maybe that can work our way sidle over to personal shopper, which was maybe something that people weren't. Ex- another thing people were not expecting. Oh, I thought yeah. you were going to go to raw. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could either. A- well, there, cannibalism was kind of a sub theme of the festival this year. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's Malut, obviously, which um, oh, right. involves quite a quite a bit of cannibalism, and then even the Spielberg film, the BFG. There's giants that eat humans, and, and then obviously it's Raw true. maybe is the best of these films. <laughs> but, well, I, I like do. the BFG. I do. Can you talk a little bit about Raw? No, because I didn't see it. Oh, right. uh, I don't see films in which, even though what's eaten are humans. She gets involved with meat because she wants to be a vet, and there's a hazing in a veterinary college where she's forced to do something, and then she decides to be a meat eater of people rather than a meat eater of animals. So I suppose it has good politics, but I didn't want to see it. (laughs) Yeah, there's various icky stuff happening in that movie. Malut was the bottom of these films, perhaps of the gr- films of the cannibal films or of the cannibal films of the cannibal films. I think it was. If you had to rank the cannibal, if I had to rank the cannibal films, I think that was probably at the bottom. But it was a really interesting experiment. The way I think like, the sort of shift that uh, Dumont has taken from you know sort of arch uh, sado modernist uh, filmmaking to this this kind of like cartoonish class comedy, I think, is really kind of one of the more interesting 
journeys a director's sort of you know aesthetic and milieu has taken in so long you know even if it, I, I don't know if the films work for me I just thought this was truly truly terrible I like the one before I like the TV series yeah, I thought that was really good mm -hmm, and yeah. why he pushed it into this I, I can't figure out the performances <laughs> were so dreadful you know I mean you just couldn't figure out why any of those people would have said just let me out of here. You know, I'm I'm destroying my career being in this movie. <laughs> He's being mean to the actors in a way. I mean, yeah. it, it, it feels that way that they're they're being asked to be gr these grotesques mm -hmm. and to have these just absolutely outlandish gestural performances. Especially, you know, when Benoît shows up, I feel like the film really begins to wear out its welcome. And I just thought there is a real kind of sense of. He has, he's disgruntled about the popularity of certain kinds of TV series, like Agatha Christie series. I mean, the mm -hmm. Benoche character and the rich people were right out of some Agatha Christie series. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, yes, he is very pissed off that he can't <laughs> make something we're all going to watch on Netflix, so he's going to really shove it down our throats in the worst <laughs> way. <laughs> Well, speaking of maybe period pieces, what about the death of Louis XIV? I missed it. Oh, yeah. right. Yes. I and I have that? a link, but I haven't looked at it oh. yet. I, I hear it's very good. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 li I liked it. Yeah. It's, and it definitely feels like maybe the most like actual disciplined <laughs> film that he has made yet, which is not that hard to say. But uh, even so, yeah, it was good. It's literally a chamber piece in that you're in a room with, with the king and just watching this embodiment of royal power fading away, watching an era fading away. And it's, so it's this, it's this weird shifting between, you know, the, the very intimate and then the, you know, the grandeur of it all. And it also, I, I thought, just looked, I think, I think in a couple of his past movies, he's kind of relying on, on the kind of a fast and loose approach to his, his visuals where the, the flaws are supposed to be part of the beauty. But in this one, I think it's, pretty conservatively looks good and and he ha he's shooting at most everyone in profiles so they all look like coins uh. you know more or less and he's constantly like restaging and repositioning people in the usual like doctor surrounding the patient <laughs> um tableau and you get a glimpse of like french court politics a little and good and then of course the kind of whole meta thing of watching Jean-Pierre Leo slowly die in front of you at the hands of Albert Serra. Kind of <laughs> 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 <It's, laughs> there's something going on. <laughs> Could we talk about our bizarre hard high points? Yes. Okay. I had two high points. One was uh, I got invited to the midnight screening of Jim Jarmusch's Iggy Pop documentary, and so I got to walk up the carpet to the Stooges. That was really <laughs> yeah. high, because walking yeah. up the carpet is usually just a terrible experience, unless, you know, you're that kind of exhibitionist. But doing <laughs> to the Stooges was something else. Yeah. yeah. Uh, How was it? The movie? Yeah. It's really good. But it's not what anyone else see it? I, see, I saw it, yeah. It's not what anyone expected. I mean, it's a yeah. very quiet movie. Yeah. And it's a kind of portrait of Iggy and of his relationship to those band members who are 
gone, you know? And so the film is kind of made to give them their proper place in history. It feels Um, circumscribed to me. I mean, I I, I interviewed Jim about the film, and, uh you know, I think he... He's even sort of, I think, kind of working his way through documentary form in a way that, you know, he's kind of unsure about. Only Lovers Left Alive has a very documentary feel because it's like you watch them pull out another record and listen to it and then pull out another record and listen to it for like two and a half hours. Yeah, Um, but they're great actors and compelling people and fantastic vampires. It's not... Documentary. And I, and I, I no, and I, and I, certainly his newest film, which which documents the seven consecutive days in the life of someone who has a very much an attachment to his routine, is also not a documentary way. I mean, it's a very controlled and thoughtful narrative film. One, I think, one of his very best films. Me too. It's a prize we like. Felt like a rebirth to me. It felt like a, him kind of using tactics that he pioneered earlier in his career to sort of a different end. The movie, you know, it has this wife who's also in her own way making art but who we get the sense that the stakes are somewhat higher for this adam driver character and that she's more comfortable with the routine that they feel mired in but also feel some comfort in and that he's kind of trying to find some way of taking solace in that routine you know and only by losing his work unfortunately drop a spoiler in the film uh, can can he he find that and and in loss you find something that's imp- that's valuable certainly his black drinking buddy who is recently broken up with his girlfriend who's just a fantastic um, actor magnificent actor performance yeah great but loss is like you know certainly powers his you know journey into understanding mm-hmm. and and as it has for many poets and so you know i i just thought that the film was a meditation on things that Films very rarely visit or visit well. Yeah, there was a lot of discussion by militant young feminists, as there are. Every generation has its militant, I've just discovered this, who just (laughs) hated the character of the wife. Mm. And I thought the character of the wife was brilliant in that it's all about how do you have a life when you're married to a guy who's obsessed with his own art and is perfectly nice to you, you know, and really adores you, but has absolutely no interest on another level of what you're doing day to day because he's so involved with his own work and how you can continue in that to find a way to keep making things and being creative. I thought she was an amazing character. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting way to frame that. That's very true. I'm trying to think of my my bizarro moments. Uh, so maybe the sex scene in Staying Vertical, the uh, the film from the director of Stranger by the Lake. Yeah, Alain Giraudy. The, oh. the Giraudy film, which is the maybe the single most avant garde film in the in the competition this year. Um, you I really I, think that. Well, I, I think that uh, at least on the surface, it has a narrative that has these extreme gaps in logic that the film doesn't try to explain to you in a way that I think a lot of people found somewhat maddening. It has these ellipses, which are kind of these you know, bravura moments. I don't know if you remember the, the moment where our writer, uh, screenwriter protagonist has encountered a shepherdess and then very quickly they form some sort of uh, a sexual bond. He impregnates her, and then we have this ellipsis to a, a shot that seems like it's out of window water baby moving. Only, you know, we're we're watching it's a digital shot, and then nine months later, there's a child in over three shots. And it's a really kind of like fantastic moment, I thought, 
in, in the film. In general, I thought the movie was otherworldly strange in a way that I didn't, I didn't really find anything else in the competition to be... I've always liked his films very, very, very yeah. much. I thought this one was incredibly lazy. I thought that it is put together as a narrative because he is simply writing the screenplay and we see the scenes as they occur <laughs> to him. And his screenplay is, you know, taking him to these places. It's not, I mean, I never for a moment thought he's writing the screenplay after the fact of these real events. I thought we are simply seeing on the screen what he is writing and he is becoming increasingly desperate and blocked, and the more desperate he becomes, the more he goes out on a limb. But I really, really had great problems with the, let's call them the spread beaver shots. Mm. I mean, I'm a person who usually says, when a guy goes down on a woman, he's a good guy. But there was something so really degrading Mm. about both the sex shots and the window water baby moving, birth of the cake shot, you know, just this cunt straight on to the camera. And there's a, there's a tenderness really in the in the horrible. sex scene later in the, later in the film between yep, the old that's man. That's another thing that that the, it's not, not exhibited in the yes. scene in the earlier yeah. scenes mm-hmm. with the young yeah. woman. That's a very very much true yeah. and, and telling. Yeah. It was still a very memorable sex scene, however. Like, perhaps, <laughs> the, most, perhaps the most memorable sex scene of the, of the whole festival. Um, Nick, what did you think of the fucking? <laughs> thumbs up, thumbs down. <laughs> uh, I was going to talk about style. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I couldn't resist, but if no, please, talk about the style. Meaningfully displaced for a second. I, uh, <laughs> no, because it was interesting. That you, Brandon, you were just talking about how this, that you thought it was one of the more um, avant-garde parts of the festival. Because but, but, one thing I was just thinking about the lineup just generally uh, this year um, especially just compared to what just like, you know, growing up watching people go to the festival and read about them, always you have these these films that are like blowing people's minds with formal experiments. But I didn't feel that way this year. It's like it's just notably not there. It, it felt like you, you wouldn't go into a film that would rethink how films are made, except like I would say in a way, Tony Erdman, that we don't have to go back into that. But uh, so that was something that really did strike me that you didn't have that. It seemed like those kind of energies were... We're they were dis- absent even from the sidebars too. Yeah, like. yeah, they were, the they were they were sampling kind of ahead. Display, they, yeah, they were displaced somehow, and and uh, that that was just something I really did feel. So consequently, I feel like people maybe felt underimpressed because they weren't dazzled yeah. at these different points. There's an American film in a certain regard, Hell or High Water, by David McKenzie, who's a terrific young director of thrillers, and this is a fantastic movie of his. But it also didn't feel like it belonged in Cannes at all. And it'll be out this summer. I, I don't know if either of you saw it. I know. I uh, with that. Jeff Bridges and Ben Foster and Chris Pine, who's actually very good in the film. And it's one of the single funniest scenes in the film where Jeff Bridges, who plays a Texas Ranger on the verge of retirement, who has one last case, and these two brothers whose ranch, family ranch, is being taken by a bank, which is foreclosing on it, foreclosing on it in a way that is somewhat shifty, um, are planning on robbing various banks that belong to the same bank that holds the mortgage in order to then pay the mortgage back to the bank. Bridges is on their tail, but really uh, like the type of film that I don't know need the platform of Can. Yeah. I mean, for me in the past, Can has always been the place or a few years can, not every year, where the feeling that 
There's nothing new to do with narrative. Narrative is over. And then you come to Cannes and you see that something, and that isn't the case. And I guess the biggest one for me was seeing back-to-back in one day Mulholland Drive and Godard's Eloge d'Amour, which are such different films. But both of them had that relationship to, oh, yes, there are places you can go in narrative without making it an avant-garde film. Yeah, Yeah, something that's kind of building its own grammar, its own way of being read. There was nothing like that at the festival this year. I mean, Tony Erdman was as close to that because it was the weirdest comedy of remarriage and the weirdest screwball comedy I'd ever seen. And I mean, there were definitely like directors who you really admire trying new things and and mostly failing. I mean, at least for me, the Osseous film was a disappointment. Uh, him trying to do a you know ghost story or or maybe not do a ghost story, do a sort of like a psychodrama where the this is all taking place in the character's head. It, it, regardless, either way, it didn't feel like it it fit his style and interests very well. I you know I think the same could probably be said for the Darden brothers movie. You know, a, a film that. You know, is more plot heavy than perhaps their previous work. Didn't seem like it fit their sensibility well. Well, I haven't um, heard that much about the Darden film. That's because we're also disappointed. It's oh. <laughs> like not <laughs> we're talking about so, actually. Yeah. I mean, the um, only one that came close for me was the Christy Puyu. Yeah, which I, I missed. Um, which I think is a really good. I mean, of the three Romanian films, I think that's mm-hmm. the strongest. Because it's kind of like Michael Snow's back and forth, superimposed <laughs> on this family drama. So that you have this camera that's just constantly, it's kind of trapped in the corner of an apartment that has several doors. And it's constantly panning left and panning right. The movement is constant. And sometimes it tilts up and tilts down. And you have this very large family at this funeral and this stuff plays out. And so the kind of form content thing I thought was a really, really interesting experiment that I didn't find disturbing at all. I mean, some people just thought, well, why is it mm-hmm. you know, shot like that? But I thought it was really interesting and I thought it held together. It was certainly one of my top five in the festival. Yeah, no, for me as well, the uh, Sierra Nevada was just... Yeah, a real highlight. And just also showed, this is something where I didn't need it to be like totally new and dazzling, but what it showed to me was the robustness of the kind of freer narrative form that the Romanians had established, you know, 10 years ago that Christy Puyu had, est- had started to establish um, with Death of Mr. Lazarescu, that they're, they're able to work with it. It's not like a one-trick <laughs> uh, thing that he's able to work with that form and, 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 and do something with it. So... It's kind of nice to see that as something that's out there in the repertoire for someone who knows how to do something with it. Yeah, because, I mean, that's the problem with calling anything a wave is that it's like, well, when is it going to end? Right. It's like over, yeah. then it comes back. It's yeah. just, you know, anyway, it's kind of a Well, the way. other two Romanian films were very strongly about, they're very, very good. I think the Manju film is also very good. And I think the film by the, the first film, uh, Dogs, is also quite good little scattered but quite good but the problem is that they are specifically about a situation in Romania for which there is no 
there's no way for them to move on beyond this mm. except to have much younger people making movies because it is the aftermath of that terrible corrupt regime sure. and the way that corruption has continued. And that's the subject. Yeah. And, and all the films the have to work through that trauma. over and over and yeah. over again, and they all work through that trauma, as you say. Yeah. yeah. Which makes it kind of interesting that, like, Tony Erdemann is, a, in, in some ways, kind of a Romanian film, right? I mean, it's a, it's a German film, but it's a film that's set, set in Romania. Romania and and it has the great has Romanian a, It has Vlad <laughs> doing something we have never seen Vlad do before. <laughs> oh, my God. We're not going to tell you what it is. We won't do that. <laughs> it's Vlad Ivanov, if you've never seen him before. <laughs> Well, yeah. speak. Well, maybe uh, speaking of favorite actors, Sonia Braga is a personal favorite oh, well, this, of mine. Yeah. So, this can we talk because yeah. uh, Aquarius? Um, Another film that seemed, was slighted. I think, yeah, yeah. I was going to say yeah. it was very seemed to be very well received. Everyone was talking a lot about it. Obviously, they made a big splash with on the red carpet. Um, you know, making sort of. There was a ridiculous uh, sketch on SNL weekend update with Maya Rudolph, who I otherwise love, very much trivializing the situation in Brazil. And um, I don't, I still am sort of trying to process my feelings about that. Obviously, uh, Filio's film was shot before all of this stuff happened. But if you guys could talk a little bit about your own feelings of Aquarius, does it live up to the hype? It's a less unusual film than his first feature, which is a movie I really quite love um neighboring sounds neighboring sounds yeah. uh, and yet that said I, I found this movie increasingly engrossing uh, a film that really takes its time to tell the story in a way that you know i think sort of begins to fizzle out maybe 40 minutes in and then in the second half it builds up momentum and and a sense of urgency and a, a, a sense of it's multiple levels of conflict that are taking place, and not just the character with her uh, her new landlord, but the character within herself and with her own responsibilities to the past and to her own relationship to her privilege. I, I um, couldn't help but feel think think of the movie Gloria. You remember from a couple of years yeah. ago? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I don't know. In some way, there's, there's not that I mean this movie's response to it, but it's just interesting to put them <laughs> alongside the kind of um, I don't know. In that one part of the performance, just seemed to be that she was willing to wear those glasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but this one, I mean, I, I kind of admire uh, this. Aquarius makes me admire this director a, a bit more. A neighboring sounds I liked, but it it was very much a, kind of a, a, a stringent piece of like arty <laughs> filmmaking um, that's very orchestrated. And in this one, it seemed like he was willing to give over a lot of this movie just to a performance and to let the let that energy drive the movie more than, than than his kind of own orchestrations. And and I think some of the weaker points in the movie are when the director's kind of stepping in and doing something, um, not to give away some part of the movie, but... <laughs> but do you feel like, um, are you sort of familiar with her previous roles? Is it, in con is it sort of like in um, conversation with who she is as a star in Brazil, or do you not really have a sense of that? Um, this is a very diva-like performance, even though she, the character, and that's, I had a little question about that. The character is not a person who is really a diva. She's just a very, very, very stubborn woman um, who's going to stay in this place, even though everyone wants her out. So yes, it is a piece, even if the character isn't a piece with a lot of the films she's made. 
Yeah, it seems like if they bothered to have a a tie for best director, they could have at least put up two or three people for best actress. Yeah, they could have put up. <laughs> yeah, it should have been Upera and Sonia Braga. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. I mean, I didn't see Ma Rosa, so I can't really comment on that. But, uh, I don't know. Were there films that it felt especially egregious as as the winners? Aside from Javier Dolan. Yeah, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't say that. I haven't seen the movie. I shouldn't crap on it. Shame <laughs> on you, Violet. I thought The Fahadi was a terrible film. Uh. I thought its use of death of a salesman was totally embarrassing. <laughs> Arthur Miller in Iran uh, without understanding anything. I mean, I'm not a, you know, I don't think... I wouldn't champion Arthur Miller, but what it's... I just thought this film was incredibly dumb. Mm. I, I'm not a fan of his films, but I thought this was a low point. I mean, what part of the translation do you feel failed? So, trying to transpose it? Just fun, like 1950s America? Oh, it, I mean, there's a framing story where these people are doing a production of Death of a Salesman, oh. and the stupid film is called The Salesman. I have no idea why, because, you know, what the relationship of what's going on in the narrative has to do with Death of a Salesman. I think I'm very stupid, but you've got me there. Okay. Okay? It just made me want to watch the Maisel's movie, Salesman, instead. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I saw it, I was like, oh, they're doing a, they're doing a canned classics of, oh, no. It's just, oh, I the, mean, there's yeah. something about these prizes that it, it, the makeup of the jury, so you get one... Canadian film and you get I don't know there's something about the makeup of that jury and the way Cannes is about let's have the jury represent many nations and many generations and so you have American Honey as the generational film and there was something very um, I'm sure each jury person walked out of there feeling they could go home and not be embarrassed because one of theirs got picked. Right, yeah. Which is not the way to run a jury. Yeah, it's yeah. A, like jury by, by legislative committee or something, right? Like as long yeah. as the pork barrel project gets passed, like everyone's going like, <laughs> to yeah. go home from the legislative session happy. You know? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> someone... Maybe it was Justin Chang. There's been a lot of discussion of this. Right. And someone mm-hmm. wrote very interestingly about why do we have these expectations of the can jury? And that this jury, one could probably say that they've never seen any formally interesting films. So for them, maybe um, Marosa was a really far-out film. Right. They hadn't seen the other four films he made before this that were exactly the same. And that's why the critics are different than the jury, but I don't think there's ever been a year where the critics were so different. From yeah, the where it was this split. seems like it's pretty unusual. There seems to be, at least in this room, a consensus of Tony Erdman we get the palm. What would you individually say for the pre- I think that L would be a very strong contender mm-hmm. uh, if if this were the Brandon Harris um, can jury. Certainly, that would be up there. Um, I put Sierra Nevada in there. Um, Aquarius would be near the top for me. It would certainly be in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And Patterson as well. Patterson. Well, I don't know. I guess I came out of it this year just thinking. Well, I guess I mean in the long run, what do the awards matter? <laughs> sure. <laughs> and yeah. it, well, just in the sense that. 
do you come to a point with it with a festival or with Ken where you're in a f- you're going to have a few years where the awards really don't matter and that that if if you're kind of clinging to the idea that they signify something uh, then it's it's more just a ritual really than anything else. Right. I mean, and it's oh, then it becomes almost a shame that that's what becomes the like well, whatever metonymy of the festival. Are there a the bunch of, of people world, that still know? watch? Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, a Theo Angelo Poulos movie that won the Grand Prix 20 years ago because right. it won the Grand Prix. Probably not. I'm not the first person to make this point, but it's like with sports, there's a clear winner. Like you won the game, you won the championship. And then with art, it's like, well, how can you ever say that this is the best album? This is the best movie of, of any. Uh, it's a dreadfully unfair thing and to that's make what, a pronouncement that's about. That's why it's so strange to see people <laughs> booing someone like Dolan. I mean, I, you know, I per- perhaps understand people finding him a bit precocious. But nevertheless, oh, it's just, but but with that, it's the, just like seems it's like... not as if you're rooting for him like he's the Mets, you know, or like <laughs> you, or you dislike him like he's the New York Rangers or well, something. You're an Islanders fan. You, I mean, it, it, it just seems like silly because you've wasted an hour and forty minutes when you could have been seeing something else or eating <laughs> a good dinner. <laughs> but it's well, that's also... why you, you might boo after the film. But there were people that were booing when he won the prize, and you know, I thought it was that was a little. You know, less. Well, and, and, less and, and, sanguine. lack of decorum. Lack of decorum. And there was also indeed. a serious lack of decorum. I think you know when the uh, the awards were being announced that people, again, people on Twitter who had even seen these movies were getting very worked up about ho- this little this little shit Javier Dolan getting a prize. You know, and it's like, how can you get this worked up? It's like, you know, there's this total cult of youth, and that you know he's still you know not yet thirty, and he's made all of these films, and they've made the well, international rounds, but then also, oh, but he's too successful well, to be oh but fair, he doesn't he doesn't do x y and z the way i like it and he also suggested that jessica kiang who's a terrific critic uh mm-hmm. writing for the playlist and uh, la times and other places that she had wanted uh she, she her review of the film had so damaged his his feelings about it that he didn't want to direct another movie wait he said <laughs> he did say that yeah <laughs> he's yes no well, not on the stage but uh, in an interview he said that you know and then he lambasted film critics saying that you know they're all fat people they eat too much don't donuts and can't make <laughs> Movies. I do like donuts. And, uh, I, I like donuts too. Yeah. No, donuts <laughs> are really <laughs> good. They're really, them. really good. Maybe we can get a quote from Xavier about the importance of critics and use it to promote our magazine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Film comment. Because <laughs> of course, we have such a folk. Donut eaters. <laughs> <laughs> do you like stuff in your face? Then you'll love this magazine. <laughs> but, but perhaps he earned his booze with his less than charitable. Uh, comments about film critics, but but also I would I would say that there were clearly some people on the jury who were uncomfortable with that win. There was a great uh, gif that uh, made the rounds on Twitter uh, yes. of uh, Delon's <laughs> face followed by Mickelson's reaction to his speech, <laughs> which was rather priceless. Yes, I yeah. must say. So, yeah. you know, again, the dynamics of juries are fascinating. I, you always walk away uh, unhappy to some extent. I think on uh, most juries. Um, if you, you're giving out this many prizes, because certainly you're going to have to do some horse trading that results in, you know, something you think that's maybe less than than up to the snuff winning. You know, I think for the Ken Loach film, it will help it a bit that it won, because it will distinguish it from the Ken Loach films of recent years. Sure. <laughs> but isn't Deepan? Didn't Deepan just open, and it was last year's? Palm Door, yeah, and sure. is anyone going to see that film? I I don't know if yeah. it's playing in Cincinnati. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that one had had legs. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, it's all well, the, the 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 larger question though is is 
anyone going to see any of these films? Well, that's right. true. Mm-hmm. Where? I just. I mean, who's going to see Tony Erdman when it opens in Cincinnati? Oh, I think people will go to Tony well, Erdman well, unless Tony, Tony, Tony Classic. Well, I think that they'll go here. The well, sure, they'll, they'll go see it here and they'll go see it other places. But it's a two-hour and forty-five-minute film that's in German, you know. And so to 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 think of it as a slam dunk in the West is a you know even if, if it's a game-changing film, I think it's a magnificent film, uh, a masterpiece in many ways. It's but funny, it, and that it's helps. funny, and it's yeah. funny, and that does help. Yeah. That does help. I mean, people but, watch whole seasons of TV shows now. Like, who's this? Like, who's this? I don't think we can make any pronouncements about you know. But but who sees it in the theater? Is is I guess the what question. What theaters I'm are there left? <laughs> well, now there are going to be many theaters in New York suddenly. Right. Yeah. right. The yeah, IFC is expanding. The Quad is rebuilding. Elmo. We have Metrograph. Yeah. We have many many theaters in which people who go to see rom coms will go. <laughs> <laughs> We have an embarrassment of riches here, but yes. elsewhere they don't. And right. and so the question is, you know, if if you are a cinephile in Detroit, Michigan, or uh, where do you go to see Tony Erdman? Does Tony Erdman play in a theater near you? Do you get Probably to have the, the same experience with it that that we have, or do you have to watch it, you know, on a TV, on VOD, if you can find it on VOD? Mm. Right. I mean, you know, these well, are we have to remember that questions. Sony Pictures Classics bought. Tony Erdman, and they don't favor VOD. So they're going to try to roll this out like a Sony Pictures Classics roll out slowly. So I'm sure it will get to screens on, in Detroit, whether anyone goes or not. That's another thing. No, oh. I'm excited for that. I wanna, I wanna, I'm, I'm looking forward to that, that coming out and seeing how that, that plays out. I, and I love the idea of it being able to play probably only once each night. Because <laughs> 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 it's two hours and 45 yeah. minutes. Anyone seen Neruda? <laughs> I wish I had because I'm sure it's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big I fan of Lorraine. So as am I. Excited to see it. As am I. I missed it, unfortunately. It actually played against Tony Erdman. Yeah, that was tough. That. <laughs> it was definitely like yeah. a, a, a number of things I didn't see I really wanted to see, whether it was the, the Yodorowsky film or... Um, a number of films out of competition that I just kind of have a purient interest in, like the Mel Gibson movie and, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of various things you, you just miss at a festival like this when you're trying to make choices and see this stuff really means something to you or could mean something to you. One film that I thought got, like, almost no attention that I think is an interesting film, a flawed film, is a film, but but a film that stayed with me and I think people should see is uh, Michael O'Shea's film, uh, The Transfiguration. which you like that. Which is uh, well, I I did, but I I don't I don't love it. I have some I have some real. I take umbrage with a lot of things in it, yeah. but I also think it's a film that is is doing something that no other film is in the competition is doing, and it's something I, I really would want to spend more time meditating on. It's a film about a a young African American child in the projects in the Rockaway in, the co- in uh, Coney Island projects. Coney Island projects. Uh, he's a murderer. I mean, I mean, maybe he's not a vampire. Maybe he, he is a vampire. He's I, a the, serial killer. He's a serial killer who believes he is a vampire. Who believes he's a vampire, yeah. or perhaps he doesn't believe he's a vampire, but believes that he can become a vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie never lets you know exactly where it comes down on this. It does suggest that this is somehow related to the trauma of his mother's suicide. Um, which is this barely kind of glimpsed thing and in, in these tiny shards of flashbacks. But but regardless, it has a, an energy to it and a dread that, for lack of a better term, you very rarely see about children's, about films about a child. It's a fascinating, compelling kid at the center 
who I you know I didn't know to what end that the director was using him, but I I wanted to keep watching his story. Mm-hmm. Ken has a history of kind of embracing bizarro black vampire movies. You know, I reminded the director that in 1973, uh, Ganjin Hess had premiered at Ken Critic right. Week. Which is the which one is, film that he doesn't reference in. Which is the one vampire film he doesn't, <laughs> doesn't reference, reference. Because he wasn't aware that the of the film. I, actually, I told him about the film. He had never heard of the film. Um, and so what? It was, you know, it was kind of shocking. He, yeah. I mean, he almost fell out of his chair. Yeah. Um, but, but the film... That, that's a testament to the sad state of affairs of, of oh, distribution. And well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, it's a m- masterpiece that was for a long time not seen, but... Regardless, you know, it, it's a film that I think uh, has this kind of like low budget energy to it that and ingenuity to it that I didn't find a lot of the American work, maybe any of the American work, mm-hmm. had. I mean, I just thought that this film was incredibly racist. Mm. Um, I thought it was incredibly racist because as Mitt Romney infamously because said... Because all the victims are whites? no. Because as Romney said, let's have them self-deport. Well, this film says, well, let's just have him self-suicide. You know? Well, sure. But I think that it, in a way, I, I didn't find that particular aspect of it they racially no charged. no agency. None of these characters have any agency. He's possessed. Mm-hmm. With this crazy story. The brother is so damaged in the war, he can't get up from the couch. Sure. There are no characters with any agency whatsoever in this film. Now, maybe this is me being very didactic. Well, I think it takes a a remarkable amount of agency to kill people and hide the bodies. He has no moral agency out of the malaise Mm -hmm. of lower class, uh, ex-urban, you know, project existence. And... The movie doesn't connect the dots directly between that and his desire for blood and to kill. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the the thing that is most complicated racially in the movie is the suggestion that he can find some sort of transcendence in this young white girl mm-hmm. who sort of magically lives in the projects with this uncle we never see in the film. And then ultimately he realizes that he can't, and then he decides to self-deport in the Mitt Romney parlance. Mm-hmm. But that felt to me more like a spiritual, uh, moral quandary that he was trying to solve of feeling lost in vampirism or his desire to become a vampire and ultimately needing to vanquish himself because of it. I wish it had had a better script. I, I agree. You know? I agree with you. I agree with you. But I do think that the movie asked, makes you ask these questions in a way that even though you don't have satisfying answers, that leaves you with something that a lot of the films, quite frankly, that were made you know, on a higher level, I don't think did. Well, thank you all for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you. And now, here's Nick Pinkerton's interview with Man of Letters, Whit Stillman, about love and friendship, his adaptation of Jane Austen's epistolary novella, Lady Susan. In this fleet-footed, Gainsbourg-inspired costume drama, Kate Beckinsale stars as Lady Susan, a widow looking to secure good marriages for herself and her daughter. Here's their conversation. Hello there. I am Nick Pinkerton, peripatetic film journalist, and I'm very happy to be joined here today by... Witt Stillman. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Witt's new movie, Love and Friendship. The basis of the movie, or the sort of jumping off point for it, is a novella by uh, Jane Austen called Lady Susan, not published until some years after her death. 
And I was wondering if we could maybe start off by just talking a little bit about what it was that you saw in Lady Susan in this short epistolary novel that you thought you could work with. What I saw in Lady Susan was an Oscar Wilde play. I said, there's an Oscar Wilde play in here. And I thought this could be a good Oscar Wilde play adaptation for cinema. So I, I saw that was sort of a commercial gambit that was being played in those days. People were getting their Oscar Wilde plays made into movies. And that I could do my own Oscar Wilde play Jane Austen story. Around what time would this have been? Sometime at the beginning of the 2000s, I believe. Uh, my first sort of correspondence and contracts or, or whatever about it were in 2004, but I think I might have been dealing with it earlier. So other than the fact that it had some commercial potential, I mean, were there any sort of thematic elements that set this particular piece aside from other Austin stuff, other than the fact that it hadn't already been strip-mined by movies? Yeah, it had never been done. The work itself had gold, had gems and jewels within it, but was sort of unpresentable or not, not, not beautifully presented in itself because we're sort of resistant to the epistolary form now. And I don't think she'd really finished it as she'd finish a piece normally. So it had brilliant material and it wasn't accessible otherwise. So there's the idea of making more of a contribution, of more of an opportunity to, to do something with it, to you know, add in a, in, a, in a way that could be really beautiful to the Jane Austen film um, bookshelf. So in a, in a sense, maybe it had the ad- advantage of not being one of the sort of canonical works where... Yeah. I mean, I, I had had conversations with uh, companies and producers about other Jane Austen, and in both cases, they were masterpieces that they wanted an adaptation, and I was being considered as director. And for me, it was sort of... Um, It was not motivating the idea of taking a masterpiece that I loved and turning it into a 90 or 100 minute film. I had already had the experience of loving the book. And I was a bit thinking like an original screenplay writer where I want to add new stories. I don't want to just interpret something that's already perfect. And so I think imperfection is quite interesting um, in material you might adapt. I think imperfection sort of helps. you know, War and Peace has been done well in, in film, but um, it's not always the case. Very often, the film adaptations I love are of novels I've hated. Can you give any particular instances? The World According to Garp and Howard's End. Those are two vastly different. <laughs> those are two examples of the same thing. And I remember some years ago, there was some scuttlebutt floating around Uh-oh. that you were... <laughs> That you were possibly working on something that was like maybe a portmanteau of a couple yeah, of unfinished. Yeah, that's true. Austin but I don't thing. want to talk about it because I don't want someone to steal it. I don't want Mirror Man. I don't want Harvey Weinstein to take that over. So this is a wholly different project. This is a totally different. Project. This is the one um, I didn't have some opportunistic producer prematurely announcing before there's a contract, and you know before he has. I don't know. You know I had sort of this wheel spinning experience in trying to have things come out of London and in this case yes it was in London I was talking about this with one theater kind of guy to sort of see if the material had kind of story potential and what he thought of it but he and I were talking about 
this is sort of a secret project that even though his background was theater, we would um, develop to be made into a film. And then um, he married his American girlfriend and moved to New York and went into natural resources. And um, I was left alone with this, which is perfect because um, more and more I'm thinking, don't do things the industry way. The disastrous sort of crossroads in my life was after the first three films. Some trusted advisor said, Wit, you know, you've done all these projects really eccentrically. Now you have to do things the industry way. So I became a member of the guild. So I had commissions and script assignments and contracts and option books and, and all this exciting stuff, really good lunches, and didn't make a film for 12 years. And so, I mean, I think people have different ways of working. And for me, one of the most important things is to control the script so maybe you have another company involved but it's in such a way that you don't mortgage the soul of the script you always keep the script and i think if i think it's better to have a bartending job which has always been frankly my dream and 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 write your scripts um and keep 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 the ownership of your scripts i'd like to talk a little bit about the actual process of the adaptation about some of the changes that you made. I mean, you spoke of sort of taking the opportunity to add to the Austin text. And I know going through Lady Susan, a lot of the choicest epigrams seem to be uh, originals or else you're stealing them from somewhere else. Oh, really? Um, A lot of the epigrams, a lot of them, a lot of the wonderful sentences are direct from from her book. I mean, facts are hard things. Um, It's a pity you married... Um, Mr. Johnson, too old to be governable, too young to die. I hope his next gouty attack ends more favorably. On and on and on. There's so many uh, sort of Lady Susan singers come from the novel. But I'm glad you think that I wrote some of them. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I mean, could you speak to some of the other alterations that came about? I mean, obviously, Mrs. Johnson is an American in your version, yes. which allows for some original riffage. Mm-hmm. Yes, that was. I mean, I really enjoyed those additions, um, and I, I say sort of additions rather than ch- changes because I think in in any process, if she had continued it, she would have characterized the characters more. She would have done more with everything, and with my background, of course, I'm going to go in one direction that she would not have gone on because, I mean, for Jane Austen. Connecticut is not the in-joke it is for Chloe and me. Um, but it works, um, and it's, in a sense, authentic. It's very sort of historically true. And um, it's, as a writer, I think it's really good to write out of material you're absolutely immersed in, almost pickled in. And so I was absolutely pickled in history of exiles from Connecticut and other places and that whole history. And... A lot of my readings of that period kind of got into the script so that I'm reading a um, biography of Colonel Henry Knox, later General Knox, who was commander of Washington's artillery. And he had, um, he's an orphan, and he'd been this sort of apprentice in a bookshop. There's the important bookshop in, in Boston, and he became the owner of the bookshop and prosperous. And he fell in love with the daughter of a Tory family. So there's this very important family really tied into the colonial administration, loyalist to the crown. And um, he, he fell in love with this girl and she accepted his suit. And in their wedding, someone made a toast with a poem. And so when I had to have 
an idea for what happens in this wedding in in our film i said well reginald will have written this poem and reginald recites that poem that was actually said in this wedding so being sort of pickled in this century and in the material was very helpful and also i mean so many elements i absolutely adore um, i lo- adore the painting of sir joshua reynolds who's part of johnson's club and just sort of the the sort of rich romanticism of his paintings and then in music we sort of like the earlier period the the baroque music and so we had a chance to use that so there's a chance of getting a lot of elements i absolutely love into this vessel this is interesting because it's your first i mean you've made films which are in various ways period pieces but this is the first time You've made a film where you're representing a period you yourself didn't have any firsthand experience of. How can you be sure of that? (laughs) Unless you are, in fact, a vampire. (laughs) And you look very well, so I suppose it's, you know, you you haven't aged much since last I saw you. Well, I did live back in this period, Nick. Um, (laughs) So it's all first-person experience. I was there, you weren't. So whatever we've portrayed in the film is absolutely authentic. So it's in no way. I was in the disco. I I knew what was happening. (laughs) You were listening to punk music. I know about disco. I know about Baroque. You've spanned millennia is what we are learning today. Witness to history. Okay, so that takes care of that question. I was going to say, you know, maybe was there any difference in that? I mean, it's also you're in a cultural context that is, you know, you're out of the American scene. I mean, this is an interesting area, I think, because I I do think people from North America have done a decent job with British heritage projects. And a lot of this material, I think, is in in film is being left to us because it's it doesn't seem like it's sexy or fashionable for this sort of exciting British filmmakers to do many heritage projects or sort of negative regard to that and I know the TV companies are doing them as as TV projects but those are sort of commission jobs not you know filmmaker passion projects and so you know Ang Lee working with Emma Thompson did a beautiful job and I think James Seamus was involved in the script on Sense and Sensibility James Ivory has done just a beautiful job with Forster Ian Forster novels Howard Zinn I think was really beautiful and so I think there's almost a tradition of people from our side of the Atlantic finding this material really rich and really interesting and and kind of romantic and you know, maybe we're distorting it in some way but generally I think these projects have also been well accepted um, in England and it's one of these things in the memoir by Austin's nephew he cites something that I also um, plagiarize in my novel it's about Henry the Navigator and, you know, some tasks, um, maybe you're not the best person to do the tasks, but the task is there to be done and you do it. Therefore, there's that legitimacy. You talk about Americans doing heritage projects, as you as you call them, while watching the movie, maybe because of the like brisk clip that it moves along at, which is very different from the kind of stately pace that I guess we tend to associate with this period or 
cinematic representations of the period. It put me in mind of the sort of Hollywood version of the drawing room comedy, uh, which was rather commonplace in the 1930s and 40s, perhaps because I know you have some affection for that period yourself. The sort of, you know, Mitchell Lyson, Ernst Lubitsch uh, kind yeah, of dialogue absolutely. comedy. Absolutely. But where are we going with this? What was the question? <laughs> oh, I was just I like those things. Yeah, that's great. I mean, to get back to the heritage also is that Jane Austen was born in 1775. In 1775, we were all the same country. We were all citizens of, of the same empire. So I think that Jane Austen and Dr. Johnson and Dr. Johnson's Club, and I, I, one of the reasons I think I love Jane Austen so much is that she's the fictional embodiment of a lot of the sort of great culture that Dr. Johnson symbolized and that we were we were the same country so it's our heritage too in some ways i think perhaps the english language spoken and used in england has gone in an eccentric way that it's their own thing it's 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 great but maybe in certain ways if you're sort of a literary traditionalist american reading a lot of this literature, maybe you're even closer. I'm not sure. I'm, I don't think we're more that more, much more distant than, than they would be. I mean, Emma Thompson did do that wonderful script and, um, and that wonderful version of Sense and Sensibility. But I, I think we're equally entitled to, to work on this, uh, on this kind of material, at least equally. And then we get to the 30s comedies next. <laughs> Well, I mean, if nothing else, it's just something of this sort of bounce that the the movie has. I mean, in terms of the pacing, it comes in at a tight what ninety something minutes. Yeah, and there's uh, and a lot a lot of credits. So it was it was under ninety minutes of action. Yeah, just it 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 seems at least in terms of tone and pacing to very much differ from that sort of Barry Lyndon-ish idea yeah. of what mm-hmm. the period is and this yeah. very like courtly, stately yeah. Uh, manner. Yeah, yeah. It's true. I think someone said it's almost like a screwball comedy in certain ways. I wonder, it, the, has the movie come out in England? It's been shown there and that's been really helpful. Um, it's really wonderful. Uh, the publicist there was very clever and scheduled a screening for the morning of the Friday before Sundance with an embargo until after Sundance. Because I think it would be bad if like all the reaction from Sundance sort of came over and critics there hadn't had a chance to see it. And so it's better or, or equal to the reaction here over there. That's really good, been good. Yeah, I was, I was just wondering what the responses had been like and if you'd gotten any sort of feedback that was like, oh, this is absolutely dead wrong. Or No, not at all. I mean, I think it's on the poster. We had the, the first review out of the UK was sensational, and it's on our international posters. So um, it was very appreciative, very serious. I mean, there's a very high level of criticism and film journalism there, and I knock on wood that my opinion doesn't change, but so far I'm very, very pleased with uh, the reaction. No, I mean, among the Austinites, there was this quizzicalness about our changing the title as if that was like, some big deal and and as if I wasn't aware that she wrote a short story with the title Love and Friendship with Friendship Misspelled as if to think that I'm working on something for 12 years and that wasn't the absolutely the first thing thought of and did the Austin crowd as so far as I know, has now that they've seen the movie, likes it and that's all good, I don't think there's a problem in that area 
with regards to the title change, uh, that's something I actually wanted to touch on because it's very interesting in that it almost might be taken as being tongue-in-cheek given the character of Lady Susan, but at the same time, I don't think it is at all. She's a very dissembling character who sort of leads two lives, one being that which she has with Mrs. Johnson, Alicia Johnson, the Chloe Sevigny character, in which she represents her motives and actions in a certain way, and the other which is at Churchill and in her carrying on with uh, young Mr. de Courcy. And somehow we are aware of this kind of Janice-faced nature of her character, but perhaps... But because- Janice only has two faces. <laughs> <laughs> who's the person, who's the mythological character who has more faces? There must be one. Yeah, there's probably a Hindu god at the very least. But at the same time in her, particularly later in the film, her exchanges with uh, Alicia Johnson, there's an enormous tenderness there, even though she doesn't hesitate to sort of backbite her friend when she's not around and make these sort of slighting comments about Americans. Not too cruel, mind you. Oh, no. Those... those if you think that's sliding, I have stuff to show you. That's complimentary. She's being very complimentary. Well, um, I actually don't think that titles have to relate to the film. I think you want a good title and you want a good film. And if the good title relates to the good film in any way, fine. But it doesn't really matter. And I thought originally that I, I like this title. I like this this story and material and I want to put them together, and uh, that excites me a lot, but that actually this title has zero, oh, n- nothing to do, or very little to do with the story. But in having made it, I think actually the title is relating quite a bit to everything, because there is this big friendship between the um, Kate Beckinsale character and the Chloe Sevigny character, and that is quite important. And then there also is love, but it, perhaps it's you know love, both real love and love being used as an avenue to financial security and someone's in love even if not both people but there is there is also love and passion in it because even lady susan is passionate about mannering and uh, frederick and reginald become passionate about each other oops spoilers and so the the title i was very impressed when warren Beatty, when he's remaking here comes mr jordan when he grabbed the title of Heaven Can Wait and used it. And I think that's great. I think, you know, legal larceny, if it improves something, approves a package, is to be encouraged. So I was inspired by that. I was also inspired by my friend Antonio Llorens, who during a radio show dedicated to film in Barcelona, went on a 30-minute rant against um, the Weinsteins for titling a film Agnes Brown. And he's saying how terrible it is these American and English companies that put American and English names as film titles and then they have to distribute them in foreign lands where the names mean nothing and just sound stupid and uninteresting. So I knew from that point of view that Lady Susan would not be really popular with Antonio Llorens in, in Catalonia or probably other distributors elsewhere in the world. So I knew it was a bad title for translation, I thought. And there's also something sort of limiting and feminine and just just one thing 
about Lady Susan. I want to make it a better world. I want. To, I don't want to make a film about just one character. I want to make a film about a world, and with love and friendship. And I thought it was so Austinian the idea of of something progressing from character name to sonorous nouns. As far as we know, she never gave it the title Lady Susan. That was her idiot nephew. Excuse me, her pompous literary nephew. I don't think he'll be listening. <clears throat> and then. Um, Northanger Abbey, she had the working title of Susan, so I don't think she, maybe she wasn't. We don't really know. I saw the manuscript yesterday in the Morgan Library. They, they actually, because the journalist was interested, we went in and they showed us it, and it does not have a title. But it was in a composition notebook that she wrote it in, which was cut away, and they just had the pages from the notebook. So we don't know whether it was on the outside. The report is that she didn't title it, and I think there's even a, a third or fourth reason to be excited about the title. And it was the first step I took. And for me, it was sort of that magical moment where a project kind of becomes your own. This is now my project, Love and Friendship, using the material from this wonderful, incomplete novella, Lady Susan. And it does seem very much yours, even though you haven't shifted characters around an enormous amount. But when you talk about the process of creating a world, it occurs to me that the sort of constellation of characters that you have in love and friendship is not worlds apart from say the world of uh, last days of disco in part because you always seem to be interested in characters who have something of a scoundrelish nature or something of the scoundrel to them in part because it's the same actresses in part <laughs> yes <laughs> um well i mean there is a sort of kate beckinsale through line because when i was writing last day's disco with these two characters charlotte and alice and charlotte is this world beating over the top dominant um, woman character kind of extravagant and then her sweet friend alice who's just trying to make her way in the world and and do good things and, and be a good person. I saw Kate playing in Cold Comfort Farm by John Schlesinger, which is derived from, from Jane Austen. It's a Stella Gibbons novel that's sort of updating Emma to rustic English countryside in the 1920s or something. And so she was just a firecracker in that. She was just stellar and absolutely so pretty. So it's the first time I was writing for an actress I didn't know, but or, or an actor I didn't know. And so... She came into Last Day's Disco sort of with Austinian heritage. And then when I read this, I thought, oh, Kate would be great for this. Um, so I sort of knew it was filmable in that sense. I didn't know I got ideas how to cast this. I guess it's sort of a humanization process we're trying to do in the films. I, I don't like the idea of dehumanizing characters, even though one dehumanized character worked very well in Metropolitan, having this 18th century style, two-dimensional CAD, Rick von Sloniker, kind of, I think, helped the popularity of uh, Metropolitan people. We all could hate him. Uh, he's the, a titled aristocrat. We could all hate, all even us untitled aristocrats. But he was a sort of two-dimensional character. And in principle, I'm against that, although I can see that it can work really well. I wanted to at least briefly touch on the companion book, because this is, I think, something... I can't think of too many other instances of filmmakers doing this, and you've done it twice now, yeah. where you have a continuation of a film in the form of a novel where you're offering, through the novel, still another perspective on the events of the film. And I know you come from 
a background very sort of steeped in literary fiction and this was sort of initially what you had thought of as a career and I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the relationship between your career as a filmmaker or your work as a filmmaker and your work as a novelist and how these things inform each other. Yes, so I sort of came at film as a a pre-failed uh, fiction writer. So at the age of 16, I decided I wanted to be F. Scott Fitzgerald and I went to college and I got in the newspaper and I, I tried to write hasty pudding shows, the musical, the silly musicals they, they do at Harvard. And I was doing all these things and thinking about being a novelist and being very intimidated by the idea and sort of accepting failure without ever having tried to write a novel. But it was so cumbersome, the short stories I was writing, even though there's some people who like them, like Tom Wolfe liked my short stories and got me a commission from Harper's, Lewis Lapham at Harper's Magazine to write a short story. And I failed miserably. And the kill fee I got from Harper's, a thousand bucks was the most I'd ever gotten for writing anything. But you can't make a whole career out of kill fees. You actually have to do something successful first. And um, so I gave up the idea of writing fiction without having really tried it very much and thought that I should try to become a film director. But in order to have a film, a script to direct, I'd have to write it myself because I couldn't afford one. So I'd have to pretend to write a film script. And then I'd finished the script of Metropolitan. I thought, gosh, I'm halfway to a novelist, which is what interests me also. And so I was I knew literary agents then. I sent it to a literary agent, and she turned it, sent it back right away. And I made the film, and the film you know, was well-received, and I got a contract to do Metropolitan as a novel. And the fellow had the crazy idea that it should come out soon after the movie, but I hadn't written it. And I was over in Barcelona with the clock ticking on my script for Barcelona, and so at a certain point, he and I pulled the plug on the Metropolitan novel. And then I did Barcelona and what didn't think of that novel for that. And then when I was finishing the script for Last Days of Guide, so much material, I started talking about doing a, um, a novel of that, and everyone said we don't have enough time to bring it out before, the, you know, with the film. But then Jonathan Glossy at the very literary for Strauss and Giroux said, no, no, we don't want it to be cashing in on the film. We want it to be a literary novel that will come out afterwards. So part of my failure in the film biz was the two years I took to do that novel, which came out in 2000. And, you know, if you have a very slight degree of forward momentum, to vary that in any way by doing anything else is really potentially disastrous. And I was really happy with the experience of doing the novel and happy with the final novel, but it was a kind of a crazy thing. And I think part of it, the idea is that if you've done a film and done a screenplay, you've created a fictional world. And for me, the hardest thing is to create the fictional world. And once you've created the fictional world, it's much easier to deal with it in other ways. And in this case, the fortuitous element is I'd blown through all my little brown deadlines. So I was supposed to write it before the film uh, was shot. And I didn't get started until after we locked picture. So I had all the material about Sir James Martin. So I had the whole idea of Martinesque humor. And so he, he just like Jane Austen, having a pretentious, not very brilliant literary nephew writing a memoir of her, turns out that Lady Susan has a pretentious, dim nephew writing a memoir about her and how wonderful she is and how malicious the spinster authoress was and the de Courcy family the snobbish de Courcy family and so it really 
it was it was so much fun and it was so quick. Normally I'm such a slow writer and I was just channeling this idiotic character. And so I was really happy with the projects. And there's certain graphic design things where you didn't really do the last galleys or whatever because they're trying to rush it out to get it in bookstores. It's in bookstores now. And um and so there's certain deficiencies of graphics and typography because it was so rushed, but I really like the novel and I hope it'll do well. And it's a two-for-one deal because we included all of Jane Austen's um, Lady Susan in the second half, including Rufus Martin, Martin Colonna's commentaries on her letters showing how they've been falsified and misrepresenting. Well, thank you so much, Wit. The movie is completely delightful. Thank and, you. And uh, I, I hope this signifies a new boom of prolificity on okay. your part. If that's a word, I, I hope so too. Even if it's not a word. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Bye. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.